That evening, at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed by demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. The Gospel of Mark was written in fairly simple Greek, compared to some of the other books of the New Testament. This might lead some to conclude that its author, whoever that might be, was not particularly sophisticated or well-educated. But that would be a foolish conclusion. The language may be basic, but the author is able to convey things with his literary style that continually amaze me. Take, for example, how Mark introduces the ministry of Jesus. By the end of the first chapter of Mark, the writer has told us all of the essentials of what Jesus' work will be, and he does it largely by reporting the events of one 24-hour period. It is a really masterful introduction. After being baptized by John, fasting in the wilderness while being tempted by the devil, and then calling some disciples to follow him, Jesus just kind of shows up in the fishing town of Capernaum. He is apparently unknown when he arrives. But by the time this day is over, everyone will know about him. This is his debut on the Galilean stage, and it doesn't disappoint. Though there are also a few surprises along the way. Perhaps we can best understand what all of it means by looking at the story through the eyes of one of those who were there. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.17 The Difference a Day Makes Simon lay on his cot. He was exhausted. Somehow, though this had been a Sabbath, and not a day of back-breaking labor hauling nets out of the Sea of Galilee, 
he felt more tired than he had been in years. And yet, despite that, he found himself staring at the ceiling. His mind just kept reeling and turning with all of the possibilities that sprang from this day. He couldn't shut it off. And so he was wide awake. He wasn't the only one. He could still hear his mother-in-law puttering away in the kitchen. She was obviously not going to stop anytime soon and was probably already working on breakfast for everyone. That alone put a big smile on Simon's face. He had watched her for several months now as she declined. Every time he returned home, she seemed lower and weaker. The last few days, his wife had told him, she had barely been able to drag herself out of bed, much less take care of everyone the way she always had. So it had been so gratifying to see the change in her. That alone would have made the day worthwhile. But, of course, there had been so much more to it than that. A few weeks ago, Simon's life had completely changed. He had been out fishing, as usual, with his brother, Andrew, when a man had come walking alone along the coastline. When he had called out to them at first, they had mostly been annoyed. They had never much liked being interrupted in their work. Once they had finally stopped their work and brought the boat a bit nearer to the shore to hear him better, they were amazed at what he had to say. Follow me, he demanded, and I will make you fishers of people. It was, of course, a totally ridiculous request. Did this man, a complete unknown, really expect them both to walk away from all this to pursue some kind of popular movement? But, even as he had the thought, Simon couldn't help but look around with a critical eye at what he was referring to as all this in his head. He looked at the nets, old and in desperate need of mending, that had just barely got them through another night of hard labor. He looked at the small pile of fish in the bottom of the boat. It was a pretty miserable result for all of the work that they had put in for it. But, more than that, he knew just how much smaller that pile would look once King Herod's tax collector had taken their generous cut, and then, supposing he did manage to sell the rest for a decent price, 
any profits would only go to their creditors. Their debt on the boat was, to coin a phrase, completely underwater. Most months, no matter how hard Simon and Andrew worked, they ended up owing more than they had when the month began. At this rate, his great-great-grandchildren would still be owing on the boat when they died. And here was this man asking them to just walk away. With a voice full of confidence and hope, he actually seemed to think that they could. And, as Peter took stock of his position, he suddenly came to the conclusion that the man just might be right. He had absolutely no idea what he might gain by following this man, but the more he thought about it, the less it seemed he had to lose. And now, as he lay awake at the end of this extraordinary day, he finally felt able to put aside all of the worries he had carried with him ever since that. Worries that perhaps he had made the wrong choice that day. It now seemed only too plain to him that there was much to gain from being with this man. For a few weeks after Simon and Andrew and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had joined him, Jesus had spent his days wandering through very small towns and villages scattered across the Galilean countryside. From what Simon could see, it seemed as if he was trying out his material testing it on the audiences in the small places where it didn't necessarily matter if something didn't go over too well. He was an amazing speaker who had an instant rapport with people. He told these stories that would draw people in. And when he encountered people who were struggling with anything from a spirit of depression to various ailments, he would respond to them with such compassion and care. It made an incredible difference for the people, and sometimes resulted in what Simon couldn't call anything but a kind of miraculous healing. After watching this for a little while, Simon became convinced that this man was selling his ability short. He was ready for the big time, or at least for a larger stage than anything that could be found in such little places. And so Simon began to speak to Jesus about going to Capernaum. As a fisher, Simon had ranged far and wide to every edge of the Sea of Galilee. The shoals of fishes, the vagarities of winds and currents, 
and the need to seek out the markets that would give him the most advantageous opportunities to sell kept him constantly on the move. But Capernaum had always been the place that he and Andrew had returned to, the place that he called home. He had a simple home there, with his wife and her mother and a couple of small children. Even though he could often be gone for a week at a time following the fish, he really only felt like he could relax when he returned there. Capernaum was a small town compared to bigger cities like Magdala or Tiberias. But Simon could understand why Jesus might not want to establish himself in such places that were much more under the eye of royal administrators. Capernaum had a decent harbor and a steady stream of people traveling the major road that passed nearby. It would be an excellent place for Jesus to make a name for himself. And so, Simon had spoken incessantly about the place. He had spoken glowingly of the famous hospitality of his mother-in-law. Eventually, Jesus agreed that they could go to Capernaum. They had arrived early this morning, after spending the night by the side of the road. It was a Sabbath morning, so they hadn't wanted to walk too far. Looking back on it, Simon was sure that Jesus had planned to arrive on this day. On the Sabbath, seeing as they did not have any work to do, the townspeople were in the habit of gathering together in a town assembly or synagogue. This generally took place in the open space by the edge of the lake. Someday, Simon would have the opportunity, one that he could scarcely imagine at this point in his life, to travel outside of the Jewish homelands. There, he would encounter Jews who had settled all over the Roman Empire. He would be amazed to learn that they meant something very different by a synagogue or assembly than did the Jews back home. For those diaspora Jews, a synagogue was a building and not just the action of meeting. And the meetings they held in those buildings were very formal and filled with prayers and readings from the scriptures. But in Capernaum, there was no meeting hall. And, if the assemblies did sometimes include prayers and recitations of the ancient texts, they were frequently more filled with endless discussions of local concerns and disputes. Obviously, the synagogue was the perfect opportunity for Jesus to show himself to the greatest number of local people all at once. Jesus immediately jumped into the discussions. He spoke compassionately 
and persuasively concerning the various disputes, some of which Simon knew had been ongoing for generations. That is often the way of things in small towns. Jesus had a way of interpreting the ancient laws and stories of their people and applying them in practical ways. And Simon could tell that people were impressed that he could speak so authoritatively and yet helpfully. And then, in the middle of it all, there was a disturbance. There was a man in the town, everyone knew him, who had had a hard life. Everyone understood that, but they were still often annoyed with him. He could be very disruptive, especially at town meetings like these. They blamed it, as they did any sort of deviance from normal behavior, on him having an evil spirit. So anyways, this fellow took exception to something that Jesus had said when he weighed in on a dispute. He started shouting, right in the middle of the assembly, embarrassing everyone. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, he cried. We can take care of our own affairs. We don't need you. What do you think you are? The Holy One of God? Honestly, no one would have thought much of anything about the outburst. The man did have a, a way of saying inappropriate things, if it were not for the reaction that it prompted. Jesus cried out, Be quiet! So quickly that it made it seem as if what the man had just said wasn't merely a mocking jibe, but that he had actually revealed a hidden truth. All of a sudden, the people in the synagogue found themselves pondering the question, is this man actually the Holy One from God in some sense? A question that they would have dismissed before as foolish. Simon realized in that moment that this Jesus was much more clever than he had previously realized. Without even making an extraordinary claim for himself, he had somehow managed to make everyone think it anyways. After the synagogue, Simon led Jesus to his house, excited to introduce him to his wife and young sons. But rather than smiles and affection, he saw nothing but faces filled with dismay and gloom. His wife explained to him that her mother had taken a turn for the worse that very day. Indeed, she hadn't even been able to summon the will to rise from her bed that morning, which was why the family had not joined in the synagogue that day. Simon forgot all about introducing Jesus 
and rushed directly to his well-loved mother-in-law's bed. As he looked down at her, he could indeed tell immediately that her spirit was broken. She seemed to have just given up. And then he was surprised to hear a voice behind him. He hadn't realized that he had been silently followed into the house. Simon, Jesus said gently, I wonder if you might let me speak alone to your mother for a few minutes. Simon, all too close to tears, was only too happy to leave the room. He didn't know what Jesus had said to her. But when the two of them came out of the room together some minutes later, he truly did begin to weep, as he immediately saw the change that had taken place in the woman. It seemed that she had found hope and a reason to keep living. She hadn't stopped serving Jesus or any of the guests since, as the sounds that continued to emanate from the kitchen reminded Simon in his bed. The best part of the whole day came around sunset. The story of what had happened for the matriarch of Simon's family quickly spread through the town and the nearby countryside. And there were many people who were living thereabouts and who were struggling. The pervasive poverty, which was driven by taxes and debts and rents, had led to many giving in to despair. There were also many other related ailments, skin conditions, malnutrition, even paralysis. As the sun went down, what seemed like an endless stream of these people, together with the loved ones who brought them, began to show up at Simon's door. They were all clamoring to see Jesus. And Jesus did see them all. Many wonders took place in Simon's inner courtyard that evening. And not a single person left who didn't proclaim with an awestruck voice that Jesus had brought some kind of healing to them. Simon had spent the evening at the door. Someone had to keep things in order. But they couldn't all go and see Jesus at once, after all. And if there were some of the wealthier people of Capernaum who offered Simon a few coins or whispered him promises of favors that they would do for him, and if, as a result, he had let some of them move to the head of the line, well, surely everyone understood that that was just how these things worked.
Simon finally fell asleep, thinking of the golden days that would surely follow. Jesus would settle down in Capernaum, of course. That was what healers and wonder workers did. Setting up shop in a place like Capernaum was just about perfect. The word would spread for miles and miles around, and the people would come seeking healing or encouragement. And there would be Simon, on the door, very carefully controlling access, for the good of everybody, of course. The dreams that Simon had that night only expanded on the thoughts that he had had before drifting off, at least at first. He saw Capernaum grow in stature and importance as more and more people came from further and further afield in search of the power of the healer. And of course they would bring gifts and offerings. Of course they would buy fish and bread and maybe even religious trinkets, leading to economic boom times for all of his neighbors. Oh, it would be a wonderful gift for all. And he saw his own wealth and prestige growing in the midst of this. He became, in his own eyes, the most important citizen of Capernaum, respected and deferred to by all. After all, was he not the one who had brought the healer here, who was the first to welcome him into his home? But as nighttime turned towards dawn, Simon's dreams began to take a dark turn. He felt a deep panic, as it seemed as if something, an essential part of the wonderful promise of his dream, was missing, though he didn't know what it was at first. He woke, therefore, with a deep feeling of dread that he didn't quite understand. He immediately jumped up. The first place he went to was the bed that had been offered to the healer the night before, once he had finally given in to exhaustion from the relentless demands of the people. The bed had been slept in, but there was no one there now, and the sheets were cold. S Simon didn't panic, at least not quite yet. First he ran to the kitchen where his mother-in-law amazingly, was still working hard. She had neither seen nor heard anything from Jesus. That's when he started to wake everyone else up. His wife, his brother, John and James. But of course, none of them knew anything. And so, search parties were formed, and they all headed out to search for the healer. They finally found him in a deserted place, far out of the town. He had been meditating and praying alone, and 
though it was plain that he had not had much sleep during the night. He seemed remarkably refreshed. Simon was so relieved when he saw him that he cried out, Master, everyone is searching for you. And he tried to take him by the hand so that he could lead him back to Capernaum and the growing crowds that he knew would soon assemble. Already in his mind, he was trying to sort out the people and decide who would get priority. But Jesus snatched his hand back from the fisherman. You know what, Simon, he said. Let's go on instead to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. That's what I came out early this morning to do. And so what could Simon, Andrew, James, and John do? They could have argued with him, insisted that that was not how healers operated, and that it would be much more efficient to just let the people come to him. But they already knew him well enough to realize that when he spoke like this, there was no reasoning with him. And so, without bothering to return to Capernaum for provisions or even a second cloak, they all set out on a Galilean tour. And Simon and the others were left to ponder all that they had learned about this Jesus over the last 24 hours. The more I reflect on the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel, the more impressed I am at how he introduces his central character. Rather than telling us things like that Jesus was a healer, a teacher with authority, and the Holy One of God, he chooses to show us all of these things and more in the events of this extraordinary single day. And yet he doesn't just show us these things, but also manages to demonstrate to us how unique Jesus was in them. For example, he introduces a strange theme that will run through his entire gospel, the theme of the messianic secret, the notion that the unclean spirits and the ones who are healed all recognize just how special Jesus is, but that he forbids them to speak about it. It is essentially the story of the worst-kept secret of all times. After all, as I suggest in my narrative, the very act of forbidding someone to speak about something tends to lead to people thinking that it must be true and most everyone he tells not to speak either goes out and does it anyways, or the act is so public that people would have been bound to be talking about it anyways. Mark also introduces, of course, the idea of Jesus as a healer. It is this more than anything that gets him all of the attention on this day. 
And let me say this about Jesus the healer. There seems to be lots of evidence that healing was an important feature of Jesus' ministry. But one thing we need to understand about that is that healers, as a category, were not uncommon in the Levant at the time. Folk healers and faith healers would have been much in demand by a populace that was clearly struggling with many physical and mental health ailments. And I know that there are many who would like to insist that Jesus was somehow better or more successful at such healing than were others who engaged in the profession. But his activity is not really described in any different terms than theirs. Oh, you may insist, if you like, that they were all charlatans and that only he was the real deal, but recognize that that is a faith statement that cannot be supported with historical evidence. So, Mark presents Jesus as a typical healer in what he does. But that doesn't mean that he fails to point out the uniqueness of Jesus. Typically, healers would settle down in one location so people could come to them. As such, they would become an important part of the local economy, and some people would do very well by managing the people's access to them. This is what would have been normal. And as the frantic searching for Jesus the next morning demonstrates, it was exactly what people expected Jesus to do as well. But in this account of Jesus' first day, Mark shows very clearly how different Jesus would be in his rootless, wandering approach to everything. Finally, one other major theme gets introduced on this day. The basic incompetence of Jesus' disciples. Again and again, as you read through this gospel in particular, they just don't seem to get it. As I hope my story has illustrated, this is something that Mark makes clear was there on the first day, too. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin MacLeod. And the mood music for this episode was Nomadic Dawn by Alexander Nakarada. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter, or whatever it's called, at Retelling Bible, and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, 
W. Scott McCandless.